I was starting to gain a real interest in sports, in particular the sport of football. And while I was there, I became a uh, Baltimore Colts fan, and one of my heroes was a quarterback by the name of Johnny Unitas. And uh, Johnny Unitas was considered one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. That was well before Tom Brady came on the scene. But as uh, a young quarterback, he had um, actually grown up in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, and then he went to the University of Louisville. He was drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers, and then the Pittsburgh Steelers cut him, and the Baltimore Colts signed him. And when he was a young quarterback in 1958, they made it to the NFL championship game. And it was tied 17 to 17, and they were playing the New York Giants. And John Unitas, in overtime, marched his team down the field, going down for the winning touchdown. And he, they were at the one-yard line. He got the snap from center. He turned around. He handed off to Alan Amici. Alan Amici went through a gaping hole into the end zone. And John Unitas turned around quietly and just walked away. He wasn't pounding his chest. He wasn't going, you, you. He wasn't jumping up and down. John Unitas was someone who was always in control on the football field. Great skills, and he was called the master by many of those who knew him. One of his teammates said, when you were in the quarterback with John Unitas, it was like you were in the huddle with God. That might be carrying it a bit too far, but I, I learned as I came to know Christ in my teens that he was a man like my other heroes who had, just like you and I, he had feet of clay, he had problems in his life, he had sin, he had weaknesses, just like all of our heroes. We're all just men and women who are in need of a savior. And I came to realize that the one true master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what John is trying to impress upon our hearts in the Gospel of John, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the one true Lord and the one master. And Jesus Christ came to this earth, we see in John chapter 1, he um, was full of grace and truth. And then we see many times when he spoke to the people and did works, they said, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever did works like him. They were astonished and amazed at the Son of God, of the Lord Jesus. And this really um, hits me in John 8, 29. Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. Not some of the time or most of the time, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. Isn't this something we can aspire to that we never quite get there, but uh, what a person to look to and to follow in his footsteps and try to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and pleasing God. Just as a, a quick recap, um, we looked at some of his miracles um, last time. We looked at the feeding of the 5,000. And we see that only God can make something out of nothing when he feeds the 5,000. And we see the response to his miracle was, it was really a wrong response. It was out of selfish motives that they wanted to make him king, the people after they were fed. And then we saw the walking on the water, where only Jesus, as God, very God, has control over nature, walking on the water. And one time there was a great storm on the sea, another time. And he said, peace be still. And there was a great calm over the waters. And then we saw in chapter 9 last week the healing of the, of the blind man where he took the mud and the saliva and put it on the blind man's eyes. The man opened his eyes and was able to see for the first time. 
And later on, Jesus went to the man and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man said to him, who is he that I may believe on him? And Jesus said, I who am speaking to you are he. And the man had the right response. He believed and he worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the right response to the miracles. That's the right response to Jesus, to believe and to worship him. And then we started seeing some of the, uh, the I am statements of the Lord Jesus. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. And I am the good shepherd. And as we look ahead now into chapters 11 through 15, specifically chapter 11, we see a new miracle and we see a new I am statement. Jesus had a close circle of friends. He had James, Peter, and John. Like a lot of us do, we have that close um, circle of intimate friends. And then it branched out to the rest of the disciples. But he had other friends too. And uh, Lazarus and uh, Mary and Martha were some close friends of the Lord Jesus. And Lazarus became very, very sick. We don't know what his specific illness was, but he was nigh unto death. And the sisters sent for Jesus. Now, Jesus was about two days' journey away from the town of Bethany, where the sisters and Lazarus lived. So they sent to him, and they were saying, Master, you're the one whom you love. He's, he's ill. And we're going to skip, we're going to go to one of the questions right away here this morning. And as we're looking at John chapter 11, Jesus, he's told that Lazarus is sick, but he does something curious. In verse 14 and 15 of John chapter 11, Jesus delays two days. He doesn't go right away to help Lazarus. So the question is, and hopefully you had a chance to look at this this week, why does Jesus delay in responding to the sister's request to help their brother Lazarus? Yes, Bonnie? Yes, and, and there was one, one more thing, too, was uh, to, to show his glory. What was the other thing? Yes, Julia. That they would believe in him, too. Yes, to, to reveal his glory and to believe in him. So Jesus here, he, um, he is doing this all for the glory of God, ultimately. And as we look at chapter 11, and you look at verses um, 14 and 15, it says here, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he told them plainly that Lazarus had died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Almost a curious statement there, isn't it? I was glad um, that I was not there. And if you read that on the surface, you go, why would Jesus be glad that he's not there to help out his dear friend to bring that healing at that time? But we look down at verse... Um, 21, and Jesus finally arrives on the scene, and he says to, uh, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Many times we think, if, if this had not happened, if you had done this, if you had been there, if, if you had not been in the car when the car crashed, if you had not, if you had not been taken to the hospital or, or, or 
you know, and many things happen in our lives. If, if this had happened, things would have been different. And Mary and Martha were saying the same thing. If you had been here, he would not have died because we, we know that you were able to do miracles. So moving down to verse 21, or actually down to verse 24, Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Here he is declaring that the body would die, and yet the person would live forever and ever. The spirit of that person never, ever dies. And we just had a, uh, we lost a, um, a dear friend recently, and Ed Sullivan, and I believe that the moment he took his last, last breath there, he was more alive than he's ever been before. He was in a place that, you know, I went there and the smell wasn't very good. He had pains in various places, mentally confused. But in that moment, when he took the last breath, he was alive and in joy and in the Lord's presence. And Jesus says to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And that's a question all of us have to answer. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe in the truth of his word and who he is? And Martha answers in the affirmative. She goes, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And she affirms that he is who he said he is. But Lazarus is dead. It doesn't take away from their grief. They know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He can do miracles. But they're mourning. They're missing um, their brother Lazarus, and others are mourning and weeping with them. And, and Jesus is not one who is a God who is devoid of feeling. We see at times he was weeping over Jerusalem. And it says here in verse 35, as he is with the people, that Jesus wept. He's weeping because he sees the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. And death stings. It hurts. It leaves an empty void. And Jesus is seeing how it's impacting his close friends and how they're mourning and weeping over the death of Lazarus. It says in Romans 5.12 that sin came into the world by one man and death came by that one man, and therefore, because all have sinned, all die. Death is the unexpected intruder many times. It's, um, it stings, it hurts, it leaves an empty void. And there's just no getting around um, that death is, is something that is, it hurts us deeply when it happens to loved ones. And even when we're going through the throes of death ourselves, um, it can be a very, very difficult time to go through. But the good news is, when we look at uh, Romans chapter 8, it says, um, neither life nor death shall be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even when we're going through that time of dying, he loves us deeply. And it says, precious in the Lord is the death of his saints. And it also says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 you know, Paul is speaking about the resurrection of the body. And he's saying there in, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Death, where is your victory? 
where is your sting? He says, those who believe have the victory that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because um, I just want to go back just a moment here. Um, chapter Romans, I'm sorry, uh, John chapter 5. I'm just going to read briefly here. Verses 25 to 29. Jesus was speaking about the resurrection. Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment." There's coming a day when all those who are in the graves will be raised in new bodies. And it says, blessed are those who take part in the first resurrection. Those are those who have done good. And what is it to do good? To do good is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin, and to live for him. That first resurrection, the bodies will come out of the graves and be reunited with the spirits to live with Christ forever. But the second resurrection is those who do not know Christ, very sobering. And it says there in uh, Revelation that they will stand in judgment before God at that, about a thousand years after the first resurrection. And they will stand before God in their own record, which is a sad thing to do. Christ one time said to the Pharisees, if you don't believe in me, you shall die in your sins, which is a very serious indictment on those who do not believe. But the good news is, for the believer, we have that forgiveness of sins, we have the promise from God that we will be with him forever. And going back to chapter 11, we see here in uh, verse, verse 40, Jesus said to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then in verse 42, he prays to his father, and he, he does it out loud on account of those who are around so that they can hear the prayer. And then finally, in verse 43, he's standing before the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. And one commentator said if he had not mentioned the name of Lazarus, that all those in the surrounding area and the cemeteries would have been raised from the dead at the same time. But specifically, he said Lazarus. And I think Lazarus... I think he knew things that maybe, I, I can't say this for sure, but he never said anything about where he was when he was dead. But I think uh, Jesus may have said, keep quiet about these things. Just like uh, Paul, when he was taken up into glory for one time, that he wasn't allowed to, to speak about the things he saw. But I imagine Lazarus, the next time when he, Lazarus was going to die again, he wasn't going to live um, forever in this body until the resurrection someday when his body will be resurrected. But I imagine the second time when he was to die, he was going to say, oh, and this is no big deal. I know I'm going back where I came from. I'm going to be with God in glory. So Lazarus comes from the grave. And the thought I have here is, um, you know, Jesus waiting the two days. I wrote down, Jesus may withhold the immediate relief and healing in order to accomplish the greater good and glory. 
it says in scriptures that his ways are not our ways. And we may not always understand all that he does, but we know that he's a good God and he always does what is right, right for his glory and for our betterment in the long run. And the good news is that Jesus indeed has conquered the grave and that gives us such great hope. We don't grieve like others who have no hope, but we know that one day we will be reunited with them. We are so thankful for that promise God has given us. In uh, John chapter 12, we see uh, again the clarity of the mission of, of Jesus when he came here to this earth. In uh, John chapter 12, in verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Yes, there is coming a day when Jesus comes again where he will be the judge. But he came this first time on a, uh, a seek and a save and a rescue mission. It says, um, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes not is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. But for those who believe, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, freedom from sin, everlasting life, and he came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and to save us. And we see his mission declared here uh, clearly. He came into the world to save the world. In John chapter 13, we see here where Jesus gives us a, uh, a new commandment. We were reading this week in uh, verse 34. And 35 of chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, we're to be um, a body of Christ that we're unified, um, we're loving one another. And when we do that, it's a testimony to the world that there's something different about us, that we belong to a loving master, and as he has loved us, we are to love one another. And uh, Jesus said that's a testimony to the world. There should be no bickering or backbiting amongst ourselves. Uh, sometimes there's other denominations where they may you know, dispute on some quote-unquote minor points, but we are to love one another and to uh, be building up one another and encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near. And let's see, in John chapter 14, we were reading this week in um, chapter, or verses 12 to 14. Jesus here speaking, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
We know when we ask for those things that are going to glorify God, that God hears us and answers those prayers. But it says here, um, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Question I have here wasn't on our sheet. But what are the... Jesus, he raised the dead, he healed the sick, he um, did many, many miracles. What does Jesus mean by saying um, greater works than these you will do? What was Jesus saying there? Anyone think about that this week? How could we be doing greater works than Jesus? It's a, it's a curious statement, isn't it? It's a question that makes you wonder, how can we be doing greater works than Jesus? John? That's, that's so true. Um, you know, we in this day and age, we have been given the great commission to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And Jesus, when he was on this earth, he had a relatively small sphere of influence when he was walking on the earth. You know, Judea, um, you know, Galilee, and, and around Jerusalem. But look at the impact that we can have. Um, you know, we can give to missionaries and support missionaries who are sharing the gospel around the world. We can support broadcasts that bring the gospel into the Mideast. We can go on short-term mission trips. We can pray for our missionaries. We're all part of doing that greater work. Jesus had a small sphere of influence because he chose to have that at that time. But he gives us a great sphere of influence when we submit to him and support um, the preaching of the gospel and witness ourselves to those who we come in contact with. So I believe that these are part of the, the greater works that's sharing of the gospel, that lives can be saved and transformed for all eternity. Okay, let's um, move on to our uh, questions. We already answered the, uh, the first question this week. In John chapter 11, it says in verse... 49 and 52, it mentions a prophecy by the high priest. Um, what is the prophecy that the high priest makes concerning Jesus? And that's in John chapter 11. Yes. And that he would do what? That he was the chosen to do what? I'm sorry, Heather, I didn't hear that. Exactly, yeah, thank you. Yes, he, um, and I wonder if that high priest, I don't think he really realized what he was saying. Um, being the high priest, you know, God was prophesying through him. He, he may have been thinking that through the death of one man, this man Jesus, then we'll have control once again. They, they thought they were losing control, the Pharisees and the Jews, 
to the Romans, and they were going to lose their influence they had because of this man Jesus. They may have been thinking, if he dies, we'll have our influence again. But they didn't realize that they were making a greater prophecy, him being the high priest, that Jesus would die uh, for the nation. And not, not only that, it says in verse um, 52, he would gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad, looking to his further mission that he would be calling the people from all around the world to himself. And through his death, people all around the world would be um, coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. John chapter 12 and verse 25, Jesus says that whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What do you think Jesus is implying by this statement? And the cross-reference was Luke 14, 25 to 33. Once again, another curious statement by Jesus on the face of it, we think, um, what does it mean to hate our lives in this world? What do you think Jesus was implying by that statement? Yes, Heather? Good. Right, that's, that's very good. A anyone else have any thoughts on that about hating your life in this world? And was anyone ever to read um, in Luke and see what that said? Well, and, and, and yes, Celia? Yes, yeah, because, um, you know, someone said, uh, you know, this is our best life now, but, you know, this is not our best life now. We do make sacrifices. Sin can seem pleasurable on the surface, but we know in the end it brings destruction, and we die to our sins to live for Christ, right? Um, any other thoughts on that? Right, so it's talking about that death-to-life relationship, dying to the things of this world and sin and walking in newness of life. And good. I was um, also, it, you know, it, it said, you know, if you read that, um, those verses in Luke, it says, he who does not hate his wife and his mother and brother and sister is not worthy of me. We think to ourselves, we can read a scripture like that and go, well, I thought God was all about love. I'm going to hate my wife or my, my sister and brother. And what he's saying here is by comparison, your love and devotion will be so deep for me 
that it will seem by comparison that's like hate towards your wife and your brother and your sister and your mother. He's not saying to actually hate them. We're to love one another. But he's saying our devotion should be so deep to him that everything else seems like hate by comparison. And, um, and there are difficulties for taking a stand for Christ. We will be many times misunderstood by family and friends and co-workers. And uh, some people will be um, strongly persecuted for their faith. It's not their best life now. Many martyrs have died, um, you know, just cruel um, deaths because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but the seed of the martyrs is for the growth of the church many times. And um, when we, we die to self, we can have an impact for Christ. So, good. John twelve thirty seven. It says, even though Jesus did all of these works and miracles, the people still did not believe in him, despite all he had done before them. Um, according to verse 40, what reason did the prophet Isaiah give for their unbelief? And I think many of us can identify. Um, I was thinking recent conversations. You know, there, there's a man at, at the table who had been nigh unto death many times, and God had brought him through, had a stroke, recovered, other physical difficulties, and thinking, this is a good opportunity to introduce this man to the gospel. And the man wanted nothing to do with the good news of the gospel, nothing to do with Christ. And we think to ourselves, oh, how could someone who was nigh unto death about to face eternity hear this good news and not believe it? I, and and we, we've all had, I think, experiences like that that we talk to people, and it's like talking to a stone. No belief at all. And according to verse 40, um, what reason did the prophet Isaiah give for the unbelief of the Jews as he was um, speaking about the uh, prophecy that was made by Isaiah? What, Isaiah, what does it say here? Why don't the people believe? Hutch. Right. And you, you may say to yourself, well, why does God harden hearts? When, when God hardens a heart, he is not doing something against someone's will. When you think of, um, you know, Pharaoh, he had no heart for God. He, he, didn't, he followed a multitude of gods and was just living for his own pleasure and for building himself up. But it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. When he hardens a heart, he is not going against that person's will but hardening that heart further and further according to his, um, his will, God's will. And it was his will here where it says, God has blinded, the, blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And we think about our, our wills, and when we come into this world, our, our wills are bent on turning away from God and not living for God. And it's only when God does a mir miraculous work of regeneration in our hearts that we will ever come to God. Um, before that, um, we do not see. All right. Um, chapter 13. We see here Jesus, um, and I'll, let's see, let me just, John chapter 13. What example does Jesus give us he washes the disciples' feet. 
what is the example that he wants to show for his disciples in doing the washing of, of their feet? Right, to follow his, his example of serving one another. Right. Um, and it says that even though Jesus washed all of the disciples' feet, he still declared that one of them was unclean. And what was he referring to there? Who was the one who was to remain unclean? Heather? Judas, yep. And uh, this was foretold even before um, Judas rebelled against Jesus and betrayed him. If you look at um, chapter 13, he also says, you know, Peter here, he says, you shall not wash my feet. And he says, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And then he says to him, um, then Peter says, well, wash all of me then. <laughs> you know, not just my feet, but all of me. And uh, Jesus said, well, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Um, but he still washes his feet. There, there was something, I've heard some um, commentators say there's something symbolic there. Hutch? Exactly. And that, that reminds us of 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're right. We're, even though we're cleansed from our sin, we still get dirty feet um, in this world with our, our words, our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions. And every day, even though we know we're clean and we're right with God, to maintain that, you know, that, pers that close relationship with God, we say, Lord, you know, forgive me. I, uh, I didn't mean to say that to this person. I was wrong. So we want to keep that clean conscience before, before God. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And uh, in this day and age, that can be a statement that um, is very, very controversial. The majority of people don't believe that. Um, according to this verse, how would you respond to someone who says that there are multiple ways that a person can come to God? Yes, Claire. Absolutely. And he, he says, no one, you know, there are not multiple ways to God. Um, it says, I believe it's in Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man, and that's uh, Jesus Christ alone. There's no other mediator between us and God. We mu must come through Christ. All right, let's see. In John chapter 14, according to verse 16 and 26, what is the Holy Spirit called twice in this chapter? Yes, Dave. The helper. The helper, absolutely. And he is the one that, that helps us. And uh, not only that, um, 
but it says in addition to that, um, he offers us uh, peace. So he is our helper. We have peace. And where it says here in uh, chapter 14, verse 27. Well, I'll read 26 and 27. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here he's saying in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance to the disciples and John in particular here, the words that he had spoken so that he could write down the words of Holy Writ when he wrote down the words of, of Scripture. So the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance the things that Jesus has said, that we may know these things and read how we are to live our lives in response to the Lordship of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And then he says in uh, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Not, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How is the peace of God different from the peace that the world offers to us? He says, I give you peace, but not as the world gives to you. How, what's the difference there? Any thoughts, Claire? Right, and I think that comes out of a right relationship with God, too. Um, peace is not always the absence of troubles in our life, our lives. You know, as man is born, um, he's born for troubles. His sparks fly upwards, the scripture says. A lot of troubles in this life. But in the midst of those troubles, when we know we have a right relationship with God, it says, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It means we're in a right relationship with him, and we know that no matter what happens, he's always there with us, even through the troubling times. And that's a peace that transcends all understanding, right? Where <laughs> many times we're confused and baffled by life. We go to him with our prayers and supplications with thanksgiving. And it says the peace of God that trans all, transcends all understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. John Chapter 15, Jesus starts with another I am statement. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. In verses 4 and 5, chapter 15, what is true of people who abide in Christ? Julia, bear fruit. Yeah, it says, if you abide in me, abide in Christ, you will bear much fruit. And he goes on to say, and thus you prove to be my disciples. So here's another thing. When we love one another, we prove to be his disciples. And when we're living fruitful lives, we also um, prove to be his disciples. What happens to those who do not abide in Jesus according to verse 6? Lisa? Right. 
I think this is, uh, this is talking, I think, I believe it's about people who profess a belief, but there's no true fruit in their lives, and they, they wither and uh, fall away. Um, what, and, and this is a good question here, what are some practical ways that we can abide in Jesus and bear fruit? Lisa? Obey his word, right? Pastor Ty? Absolutely, yeah. So, and, and I think, too, anything else we can think of, um, you know, out of obedience? Will? Yes, that's another key point in abiding in Christ is, is speaking to him. Um, a relationship isn't one way. It's not that we just hear from God and never talk to him. We hear from him, we talk to him, and in that abiding, um, by the power of the Spirit, we start to get infused with that power within to do those good works that will glorify him and bear much good fruit. Um, what are some, we, we speak of fruit, and, and that's a, a term that we kind of throw around. Well, what are some examples of, uh, I think we've alluded to this earlier, but maybe some more things. What are some examples of uh, fruit that we can exhibit to the world around us and, and so prove to be his disciples? Lisa? Yes, by, by loving others and I, yeah, by making disciples of others, disciple making, you know, sharing our faith, um, sharing the gospel, making disciples of others. Um, that's all part of bearing good fruit. Good. Any, anything else um, as far as bearing fruit? Mike? Train up a child in the way he should go, and he will, when he grows old, will not depart from it. Those words will be infused in his mind and his heart. Um, yeah, we want to bear fruit. Our, our, we want our children to bear fruit, too, as part of that discipling. You, the most important people in our lives to disciple many times are our children. Yeah. Anything else bearing fruit? Excuse me? Forgiving one another. That's so totally unlike the rest of the world, right? Uh, the rest of the world wants to take revenge, and, and, but that's, uh, that's bearing fruit by... Um, you know, it says, I think it's in uh, Colossians, the fruit of good works. That That's a good work, being able to forgive others when they've done something against us. So the fruit of good works, um, the fruit of um, discipline and sharing Christ. There's another one here. Uh, one more. Anyone else before I? Was... Titus, oh, I'm sorry. You're way over here. I'm sorry. And I think that goes along with the, the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? You know, that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control, patience, faithfulness. 
these are all the, uh, the fruits of um, the Holy Spirit, that a true believer, you know, we're, we're all growing. You know, some people manifest these things maybe a little bit quicker. Sometimes it takes longer to manifest patience. Um, you know, even the Apostle Paul said, I have learned um, contentment. It wasn't something that he had right off the bat. Um, it's a learning process. You know, we're all at different levels, but I think for a true believer, we should be manifesting fruit in our lives. Um, Jesus said one time, you will know them by their fruits. You know, we, we should be fruit inspectors. Do we see fruit in our own lives? And uh, we hope to see it in, in the lives of others too. And finally, um, it says here, um, I saw in Hebrews 13, 15, um, the fruit of our lips, it says that uh, thanksgiving and praise is a way of offering to God the fruit of our lips and, and praising him. We'll be doing that during worship today, giving thanks to him, praising him, and that's uh, a fruitful part of um, giving praise to him. So, good. Um, we, we close with the words here. It says, by this my father was glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of your word. We thank you that Jesus is the true master, the one that we are to look to and alone adore and worship. We Father, Father we thank you that you have shown us the way that we can um, so prove to be disciples of Christ, and I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would help us to love one another. I pray, Father, that by the, the power of the Spirit, you would help us to bear forth fruit in our lives and, and being forgiving and kind and self-controlled and patient and faithful. Lord, we can't do these things on our own. We need the power of the Spirit. So we pray for your empowering. We pray for your strength. And we pray that we, like um, the blind man who was given sight, that he believed and worshiped. And we pray that you would help us to worship you this morning in a way that gives you great honor and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.